<laughs> Let's uh, stand and read John chapter 10. We're not doing the whole thing, but we're doing a good portion of it. Okay, John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, he, the door opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out of the fine pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my, know, my, own, my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock of one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. A division occurred among them amongst the Jews because of these words. And many of them were saying, He is a demon. He's insane. Why do you guys listen to him? Others were saying, These are not sayings of a demon, one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your words. And uh, the words here are, are just so classic for John as he talks about you being the only way to salvation and and you being a, a God who lays down his life for us and through death on the cross and through your resurrection. These words are powerful. They mean a tremendous amount. There's no Christian faith without them. May your spirit uh, guide me only into truth and uh, give me confidence to speak boldly and with clarity. And uh, where everybody here today, Lord, is in a different place when they walked in the door in terms of where they're at with you. And regardless of where we're at, oh Lord, your message can speak to all of us, can remind us of who you are and how much you love us. In Christ's name, amen. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of the message today, I want to first address an important question. Here's a question. Why did Jesus choose to use a sheep ranching illustration at this point in his ministry? Like, why the talk of sheep? Why is he referring himself as a door of a pen? Why is he referring himself as a good shepherd? I mean, other places in the scripture, in John, we've seen him describe himself as the living water at the well. We've seen him describe himself as a bread of life. 
when he fed the 5,000. We've seen him describe himself as a light of the world at, at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, we've seen him describe himself as the Son of Man. While we know when Jesus speaks, his words are not by accident and they're not coincidental. If he chose to use a sheep illustration and a shepherding illustration here, it's because there's, the, the context is, is um, creating this for Jesus. And he knows that this is the timing for this illustration. And it all has to do with ha- events that happened in Israel's past and what was happening now in, in Jerusalem. And after drawing these things on the board, I may refer to them in the sermon, I may not. I just wanted to have it up here in case I, I needed them to, to, um, to make my points more clear with a visual representation. But the Jews are very familiar with sheep ranching. It was part of life. They were an agrarian culture. I mean, that's, that'd be like uh, oil and gas for Albertans. Everyone knows what oil and gas is, and we're familiar with those terminologies. He, they were familiar with sheep ranching. It was part of their life. And uh, so they understood that from a, from a practical point of view. But also, in the Old Testament, sheep ranching and shepherding and those kind of things were very prominent in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, God referred to himself as a shepherd. Remember David in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Right? He speaks of these things as him being the shepherd. And Israel is defined all the time in the Psalms as being the flock. So it's clear that these people, these Pharisees and the disciples listening, knew that God was the shepherd, Israel was the flock. But but also, the under-shepherds, the leaders of the church, uh, of Jerusalem and Israel, were called the under-shepherds, and they were the religious teachers. So God was the main shepherd, Israel was the flock, and these under-shepherds that worked under the main shepherd were the religious teachers. But they were called shepherds as well, throughout the Old Testament. Well, there was one situation in Ezekiel 34, which is very interesting, because if you understand this, I believe this is why Jesus speaks the way he does to these people at this point in history, after he heals the blind man. Look at 34, 1 to 8. He is warning the Israelites' religious teachers for their corrupt spiritual leading and their blindness. And they are, they are destroying the Israelite people with their false teaching. Look at verse 34, 1 to 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the disease you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and every hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Of course, these words are spir- these are spiritual word pictures to describe their spiritual bankruptcy of the people because of their false teaching. But notice in the last verse, he says, "There's no one. There was no one to search or seek for them because the spiritual leaders were failing to do their job." Now look at verse eleven. For thus says the Lord God: Behold, I myself will search for my sheep 
and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered. God says, I'm going to do the job that these under-shepherds are not doing. But here's the beautiful picture in verse 22 now. Listen to how he's going to accomplish this shepherding in verse 22. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. And then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Now, someone might say, well, that's, that's a, not a reference to Jesus. That's a reference to David. Because he says, my servant David, he will feed them. Well, here's the thing. In Israel's history, David is long gone. He's dead. His kingdom, he's come and gone. He's over with. He's in the grave, rotting. And this has come later in history of Israel. And he says, I'm sending my servant David. So he's referring to, referring to Jesus Christ. Fast forward to the New Testament. What's going on in John chapter 9 prior to this, this expression or this illustration by Jesus? In John chapter 9, Jesus has killed a blind man. The miracle is so incredible that verse 32 says, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. The miracle was to point the Israelites, and including the teachers, to know that he was Jesus, he was the Messiah, he was the King. The people of Israel were then to, the, the leaders of Israel, the religious teachers, should have pointed to the people and said, this is Jesus, this is your King, he's come, he's, he's going to bring salvation to us. Instead, they want to kill Jesus. And what they do is they actually, with this blind man, Anyone who confesses him to be the Christ, from, we see in verse 22, they put him out of the synagogue. So if you confess Jesus to be Christ, you're excommunicated from your community. You're no longer allowed to be part of the people of Israel in terms of that racial identity, which is incredibly painful if you are, if you are in that culture. So here we have Jesus now in verse 43 saying to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. What's he saying there? He's saying, you false teachers are so blind that you have taught everybody through your false teaching that I'm not the Christ. And if anyone confesses to be, be, me to be so, they are to be excommunicated from the life of Israel. Instead, they should have been pointing them to him and he's pointing away. So when you take the parallels of the false teachers in Israel, and the good shepherd to come in the Old Testament. And now you have the false teachers here in this current situation, and the good shepherd now here. It is not by coincidence, I think, that Jesus is using this illustration, because he's bringing the Jews back to their history to say, you know what? You, you know this stuff. You're, you've taught this stuff. You, you, you will get this. And it's pretty cool, because as we've been studying John, one thing is clear. You know the Jewish history, the Jewish context, you're going to understand this book a lot greater. I think you guys have seen that as we've been studying more and more and more. Knowing the Jewish context really helps us understand why John uses the things that he does in his, in his book. So Jesus uses this allegory to demonstrate that Jesus was the true ruler of his people in contrast to all the false shepherds. And he was going to accomplish his rule in an unexpected way. He was going to bring salvation to the Jews 
and to the world through his voluntary sacrifice of his life to bring people into relationship with God. So what we're going to do now is I want you to I want to contrast these false shepherds to Jesus as a true shepherd. And I don't care if you remember what the false shepherd's characteristics was. My purpose for today is when you walk out of here, you understand who Jesus the Good Shepherd is. And, and that you understand in a greater way. And we're going to do that because we're going to have a time of communion after. And so with those things in mind, you can take communion and appreciate him much greater. First characteristics of false shepherds found in verse 1, verse 8, and verse 10. They are described as thieves and robbers. In verse 8, we get a description of what it is to be a thief and robber. He says, sorry, in verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We know from the opening of chapter 10 that there was only one way into a pen, through the gate. That was the only one way in. And the shepherd could only go through the gate to enclose them, to protect them from outside elements and outside prey and so on. A thief and a robber could only get into the pen if they climbed the wall and jumped in. So if you came through the gate, you would have been known by the doorkeeper and he would have let you in. If you had come through the gate, the sheep would have known you and wouldn't have fled uh, from you. But here the thief comes in only to steal and to kill and destroy because he comes in another way. What's interesting is that about that is uh, in verse 10, oh obviously in stealing is to take something that doesn't belong to you. But to kill something is to murder. So how does a Pharisee, a religious leader, murder somebody? If they're described as thieves and robbers and are killing and destroying, how do they do this? Well, context is is the spiritual life of these people that they deal with. How they do it is that they, they spread their false teaching into these people's lives. And as a result of the false teaching, lead them astray from who God is and kill them. They pave a pathway to hell for them. How does someone murder? How do they murder? How do they do it? Well, it's interesting in John 8.44, Jesus tells us. (laughs) In John 8.44, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says this to them. You are the father, you of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. See, the devil's behind all destruction when it comes to spiritual life. He's behind it all. So how does he do it? He, tell, he spreads lies. He spreads false teaching. And in Matthew 23, Jesus describes these men as whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside, but like dead bones on the inside who are full of hypocrisy through the spreading of their false teaching. So the devil wants to get his false teaching into the church. He wants it here today. He wants me to speak false to you because he wants to try to take you out. (laughs) And even outside the church, it's all about you can't trust God and and make you want to rebel against him. It's an attempt by the devil to kill and to steal the soul. And Jesus is saying, you guys are like that. You guys are just like that. This is the religious leaders of the church. These are the pastors and the priests. And he's saying, you're actually destroying people's lives with your teaching. They're also described as being a stranger in verse 4 and 5. So they're described as thieves and robbers, or robbers in verse 1, 8, and 10. 
described as being strangers in verse 4 and 5. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. He's speaking of the shepherd there. However, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. In the Palestinian culture, um, all, if you had your certain flock, you would be out in the fields, but you'd be intermingling with other uh, shepherds, and your flocks would be combined in the hillsides. At nighttime, it would be time to call them in to the pen because they needed to have a place for safety at nighttime. How would you, inter- how would you get all the sheep to separate and follow you back in when there's hundreds and hundreds of sheep? It would be a complete mess, right? Because there's all these sheep intermingled. Like, how do you distinguish who's is who's? Well, what's interesting is, and travelers who have been to Palestine have witnessed this, each shepherd had a unique call. A unique call. And when they would call, the sheep would naturally separate from the herd and come to their master, and he'd walk them back into the pen and put them into safety. It's not, you might think, that seems like pretty crazy to believe. Well, it's not so much crazy when you think about your dog. Uh, I, could sit, I could take all of your dogs in here and I could call them like crazy, but they're not going to respond to my voice as much as they are to yours. And even within your homes, I guarantee you, if I were to ask you, who is the dog's favorite and who they're going to listen to, you're going to know within the parents who that person is. And likely it's the person who feeds them, <laughs> right? But everybody knows who the dog's is a favorite in the house. Why? That, that dog sees them as a master. So it's not too crazy to think that these sheep couldn't respond to him either. Well, Jesus is using this illustration to speak out against the religious leaders. He's saying, my sheep know my voice. They, they will listen to my teaching. They will listen to my commands. He's saying, but you guys are like a stranger to the sheep. Your voice, your teaching is so far off that when they hear it, they won't even recognize it. And they're going to run away from you because of all the, basically, the the garbage that you have to say. My true sheep, God's sheep, will not respond to your voices. It's interesting. Uh, strangers have attempted to imitate shepherds with their clothing. They've done some tests where they, and studies where they've had people dress up in the shepherd's clothing and try their calls and the sheep won't come. They know instinctively that there's something off with the way they're dressed and the way they're calling, even though they're trying to imitate the true shepherd. Think of my, I think of my life, I think of your life. If someone brought another religion to you right now, like Buddhism, Islam, any of these things, knowing what you know about Jesus now, would it even be tempting to you to listen to those voices? For me, they, it's complete, it's, a strange, it's strange. I have no interest in following those voices. He also compares them to a higher hand in verse 12 and 13. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not as concerned about the sheep. Unlike the robber and the thief, nothing evil is mentioned about the, the hired hand here. They're not out to kill and destroy, but the outcome is the same. Because if a hired hand flees at the first sign of danger, they're unprotected. They are completely lost and in danger. 
So whether you kill them immediately if they're a thief or a robber, or whether you flee from the scene and a wolf comes and snatches them, the outcome's the same, you're dead. <laughs> but the intent initially is not evil. Why? Well, it says here, they have, because he is a hired hand is not concerned about the sheep. They're not concerned. They have no pride of ownership in the sheep. At the first sign of danger, they're out of there. Their, their motto is something like this, and I guarantee you, Tori, Reitman's or uh, Laurel in your homeschooling stuff, I bet you thought this in your head. You know what? This stuff's above my pay grade. I don't get paid enough to deal with this crap, right? I'm out of here. Like, this is so stupid. Like, I'm going to reconsider my job because the amount of crap I'm going through versus the amount of money I'm getting paid is just not worth it. I'm sure we've all said that, except for Stuart, he's never said that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. If, he wasn't, if he was asleep, he's not awake now. <laughs> okay, so that's their model. That's, that's their t-shirt. I don't, this is above my pay grade. I'm out of here. There's no pride of ownership. Their key trait is this, abandonment. Abandonment. Abandonment of the flock in order to protect themselves and their own interests and to serve themselves. And you know what? Jesus is saying, these teachers like the hired hand. They abandon the flocks to serve and protect their own interests. I won't get into it in detail. I'll give you two examples of this and you can look them up later. Mark chapter 12 and Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 12, they are described as devouring widows' homes, these religious teachers. What, how, what happens? Well, in that culture, Pharisees would serve as estate planners. So they'd come into a widow's home, and they would take advantage of a distraught widow who lost her husband, who left a legacy or, or an inheritance to the wife, right? They would convince them to give the money to the temple because it was God-honoring to do so. And they would strip the women of their wives of, the, of their inheritances that was passed on from their husbands, or the legacy left on that was rightly theirs. And they would do it in the name of God to strip them of their, their money and their inheritance. So, so and, they, and then by, certain, by giving the money to the temple, the Pharisees <laughs> became wealthy. That's one example. Another one in Mark chapter 7. The law said, honor your father and your mother. So, that meant financially take responsibility for them. So what the Pharisees do to get around that? They went and made a law, a man-made tradition... That if they gave to the temple and gave to God, that would eliminate the responsibility of having to take care of the parents. Because it's more important to give to God in the temple than it is to your mom and dad. Who's first, God or your parents, right? Very clever trick, very clever law to institute. So that the, what happened was it was a devious tactic to dishonor the parents and increase their own wealth. See? Their, 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 their key thing is abandoning the flock, abandoning God's people in order to protect their own interests. These guys are like the hired hands. Now let's contrast Jesus as the good shepherd. Those of you who love taking notes and, and love uh, like diving into the word of God, you can pick up the good shepherd lessons from the I am statements. There's three of them. Look at verse 7 to 9. He says here, I am the door. In verse 7, I am the door. In verse 9. And then he goes to explain what that means. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Okay, he, he, he says it there. And verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
So again, whenever he says, I am, I am, I am, he then illustrates those points. So you can go to there to, to figure these out. But these will be your lessons for today. So at the end, I'm not going to give you lessons. These, these things I say about the Good Shepherd are the things you take away. So what's the first thing that God wants us to know about, about himself in terms of being the Good Shepherd? The first thing is this, that to look at Jesus as the, as the Good Shepherd is to see him as the only entry into a relationship with God. He's the only way by which you can enter a relationship with God. Look at verse 7 to 9. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. Again, the spiritual... He, he, he moves from the, the physical word picture to a spiritual reality. He is the way to salvation. The key observation in here is the exclusivity of how one can enter into the fold. When you went to a sheep pen, there was no way into the pen except through the gate. Anyone else who tried to get in another way was a thief and a robber. He says, I am the door, I am the gateway into the sheepfold. He's saying, there is only one way into salvation, and that is through a relationship with me. There's no other way. It's exclusive. It's not inclusive. Our society says this. I've had this conversation a few times. All religion points to God. That's our society. Jesus says, not in your wildest dreams. It's a recurring theme through John. And I want to talk to you about my experience in evangelism um, because this has given me a new way of speaking to people. I want to share with you how I might talk to people. If someone said to me, all religion points to God, I'd say, I would ask them this question, do you think that includes the Jewish faith? And they would have to say yes if they said all religion points to God. Right? I'd say, well, my next question would be, well, it's interesting you say that because the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus always condemned told them they were going to hell, told them that they were in huge trouble, told them they were spiritually blind, and said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again spiritually. So if, if you think that it's all inclusive, Jesus himself said to the Jewish leaders of his day, you are not right with me. So the question is why? Well, that's another topic. But here's the key thing. That means me, as your pastor, can't get you into heaven. I have no power, no authority to save you. No church, Genesis House, can't get you into heaven by your attendance here. No parent, they can't love you enough into heaven. No change in your moral behavior. You can't go from sin to now making an effort to do better and get into heaven. Jesus in 14.6 of John says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can enter except through me. In our society, again, we have this model that all religion points to God. Jesus says this, religion, religion is the burglar of the soul. Religion is the burglar of the soul. The next thing we need to know about Jesus as a good shepherd is he's the source of eternal life. Verse, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The Jewish leadership, again we see here, has come in as thieves and robbers, come to harm the flock, have no interest in the welfare of the sheep. Jesus says, I've come for the complete benefit of the sheep. 
I've come to give abundant life, eternal life. Now, this is not a health and wealth prosperity gospel, like he's come to make you rich. Um, this is about living on this earth as God designed it. He's come to give you abundant life here and now in terms of he's set up life that you are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and live like him. First John says, if you know God, you will walk as Jesus walked. We are to look like him in the way we live. So he gives us his design, his blueprint to how to live. And that's how we live abundantly here. But it's not just about abundance here. It's about abundance in the eternity. This, king, this, this life is short. Abundant life will be given to us in eternal glory. So it's not only about this world, but it's about the world to come. The third thing that Jesus is as the good shepherd is the one, he's the one who's intimately connected with us. Look at 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my, known, my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I love this here because here he uses the parallel of how he knows us as how he knows the Father. He says, the way I know God, the Father, is the way I am connected to you. Now you think about that in terms of the relationship he has with them. In terms of like the love they share and the intimacy they share. I mean, there's a little difference because of our, the, the sin that we have in our lives. We can't have it to the same degree, but he's designed us to desire to have that. Between the Father and the Son, there's perfect knowledge. Between the Father and the Son, there's perfect unity in their speech. When Jesus spoke, he was speaking the words of God. There was perfect unity in their character. He says, if you want to know the Father, look at me. And Jesus is saying, I'm intimately connected to you. I know my own the way I, I know my Father. His desire is to, have, give, to help us with, to, to think like him, to walk like him, to speak like him. He wants to pass on that, that connection, or he wants to be connected to us in these ways. He wants to share his life with us fully. I've been having lots of conversations over the last couple of years, and I, I've noticed that a lot of people define Christianity as it. It's like, I, I'm interested in it, or I'm interested in that. And it's like, they, they, in other words, Christianity is a system of belief or a system of thinking. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not a system of thinking. It's a relationship with the living God. See, that's, I define Christianity as a relationship. Religion is about systems and rituals. There's a huge difference. And in Muslim testimonies, I've listened to them on YouTube, they say when Jesus appears to them, they can't believe the love that they feel when, when he appears to them. Also, after they've been convicted, he says, because Allah is so distant, so distant, we, don't, we, we are taught not to even consider that he would even like, consider us. Muslims, when they come to Jesus, can't believe the love and the intimacy that they share that they've been missing their whole lives. They fear, they live in fear, knowing that they might never go to glory. Even the Prophet Muhammad in the Quran, it says that when he dies, it says he won't even know until he stands before Allah, whether he's in or out. The Prophet Muhammad, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I, my sheep are guaranteed this intimacy, and they can know that I love them and walk with them. It's completely different completely different. Greek philosophy in the days of Paul, same thing. God was completely distinct from creation. God, you could not know God, experience God, nothing. He was completely distinct. 
So your life was a life lived in fear, and you had to appease them through rituals and temple sacrifices and all things. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to be completely, I am completely involved in your life and completely involved in creation. There's other pictures in here of his intimacy. Look at verse 3 and 4. To him that he opens the door and he calls the sheep and they hear his voice. And he calls them his own sheep by name. He knows their names. He knows your name. And he leads you out. And there's a beautiful picture here. This, you, you might have missed it in verse 4. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. If you've ever seen sheep herding, how do they round up their sheep or lead their sheep? Usually there's a sheep dog. Shepherd stands still, calls the dog, and the dog herds the sheep, does the work for him, or he stands behind them and like, you know, gets them out, or he stands beside them and gets them out. What's Jesus saying here? I lead them by going ahead of them. I walk in front of them. In other words, when I lead my people, when I'm, I'm so intimately connected, I will not make, I'm not going to go anywhere that I, I, I'm going to go first, and you're not, wherever I go, you're going to go. But I'm not going to go anywhere without you. I'm not going to put you in any position that I haven't faced or I wouldn't go myself. It's a beautiful picture, right, of, of leading. He puts forth his sheep, but he goes ahead of them. And he doesn't use intimidation or force. He uses his voice. How does he walk ahead of them? And he calls them. It's a soft voice. He simply calls them and he walks ahead of them. It's a beautiful picture, again, of intimacy as the true shepherd. The next thing about Jesus we need to know as the true shepherd, as the good shepherd, is he unites his church. He unites his church. He has a love for all. Look at 14 to 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my, know, my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life to the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Notice the compelling necessity in this verse. Did you notice it? He says, I must bring them also. I must. I, I have to do this. <laughs> Who are these groups then? Who is he talking about? Who's the other sheep in the fold? In some people's camps, uh, if you're a Calvinist, you will think those are the people who are predestined before the foundation of the world for salvation. Uh, you know me and how I think. I don't view God in that light. If you've never heard of this before, I can talk to you over coffee about what that means. But money, all virtually <coughs> commentators I read, I, I read three commentaries before I came prepared today. All my commentators believe that verse 14 was speaking about the Jewish people. So verse 14 was a Jewish reference. And verse 16 is a Gentile reference. Other sheep, right? I was so convinced of this a couple of years ago that I actually have a black marker in my margin, a Jew and Gentile reference. <laughs> so I was, I was in that camp myself until this week. Until this week. And I know I might stand in opposition, and I know people might argue against me, and that's okay. I, I, I know why they say what they do. I used to believe it myself. But let me give you substantiation why I don't think he's talking about um, Jew and Gentile references completely. In the passage, sheep are always spoken about in a positive light. 
They've all, sheep are, uh, in this passage, up to this point, have always been already in relationship with God. All, they're already in the door and in the fold. So when he says, I have sheep that are, uh, which are not in this fold, it means, I think he's saying this, there are other people who love God, there are other people who know about God and are trying to follow his ways, but they haven't heard my voice yet. I think when he says, what the, an example of those who have heard his voice and are already in the pen are the blind man. The blind man is a Jewish man who's heard the voice of Jesus and jumped into the way, the door gate, and he's in. The Samaritan woman in John 4, she's already in. She's in the fold. I think it's converts to Jesus Christ who've heard his voice who've been followers of God, or at least they thought they were, and have now heard his voice, heard the full message of Jesus, and they're in. And I think he's saying this, I have other sheep, people who already are in, they just haven't heard my voice yet, but I want to go get them and bring them into the fold. And I'll give you three substantiations to give you my claim, because I don't come about this willy-nilly, especially when I'm going against commentators who are scholars, because I respect these men, they, they teach me a lot. I'll give you one, we did them last week, Cornelius. Cornelius, his prayers are ascending before God like a memorial. And he, God notices the alms he gives and he recognizes him as a genuine follower. And then he hears the message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on him and he's in. Another one, uh, um, this is a fantastic passage in Acts chapter 19. I want to read this to you. This is years later. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Described as disciples, described as believers. And they said to him, No, we haven't even heard whether there's a Holy Spirit or not. And Paul says, I'm paraphrasing, Really? Are you serious? You haven't heard about the Holy Spirit? Well, let me tell you about him. And they were all baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What do you mean in the name of the Lord Jesus? Paul, uh, Apollos and Paul started telling about Jesus Christ, and then they were all in and baptized like that, received the Spirit of God. I think he's who he's talking about. But my, my biggest substantiation to you is look at verse 41, 40 and 41. At the end of this passage, at the end of this passage, he's talking about to all these people and going on and on and on about this whole thing about him being the good shepherd. There's two Three random verses there that don't make any sense in the context unless you put it on this, in, uh, to verse 16, in my opinion. Look at 40. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man, Jesus, was true, and many believed in him there. These guys are coming to John already believing in God. They're already like... They're in. They're listening to. They're listening to the message, and they and they and they think I'm in. But they here's the thing. They haven't heard his voice yet. <laughs> anyway, you, you get the idea. So you, uh, if people argue against me, I I'm okay with that. But I want you to know um, where I pulled these things from. Finally, this is the last piece to finish the message today, and the most important. Jesus as the Good Shepherd is the one who was willing to sacrifice his own life for our benefit. Again, if you love 
if you love uh, observations less than application stuff, four times, four times in the passage he says, I'm going to lay down my life. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, uh, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one has a... No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Okay? Four times he says, you want to know who I am? I am the God that will sacrifice myself. Why is that so important? It was rare. It was probably rare in that society that a shepherd would have his life in danger to that degree. Yes, there's examples of David. David, when he was a shepherd boy, had to face a lion to face a bear and protect his fold. I'm not saying you would not face danger. You would. But I'm saying it's probably like, it wasn't probably a daily occurrence that you had to face danger and put your life on the line. Jesus is saying this, the normal identifying marker as me, as your shepherd, is my willingness to die for you on a day, uh, to die for you. My identifying marker, what's normal for me is my self-sacrificial nature. And think about this. Here's the irony. Ready? Death of a shepherd then and now would have spelled what for the flock? Disaster. Vulnerability. Unprotection. No safety. Jesus as the shepherd has the complete opposite effect. It provides protection. It provides not disaster but victory. How? Because by laying down his life when he dies, he dies for our sin. So that when he raises to life, we don't have to pay the penalty of our sin. So his death, his laying down of his life, produces victory for us. It gives us eternal life. It gives us abundant life. If he doesn't lay down his life, we're vulnerable. We stand before God on Judgment Day with doomed. So the, 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 the shepherd in that culture goes, if he dies, the sheep are, the sheep are doomed. For Jesus, to, as the good shepherd, to die, we have victory isn't that crazy? It's complete opposite. But here's the key. It was not forced. It wasn't because the Romans were clever and tricked him onto the cross. It wasn't because the Jews outsmarted him with schemes and they got him. He voluntarily laid his life down. Voluntarily. And for this reason, verse 17 says, The Father loves me. For this reason, the Father loves me. But there's more. It wasn't just a willingness to... He was willing to lose his life for the people and for us. But he also had authority to take it up again. You catch that? In verse 17 and 18. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I choose... I choose. It's an obedience to God. He's asked me to do this, but ultimately it's my choice and I will willingly do this for the sheep. I was talking to a Jehovah Witness about a year ago and I wished I had this on the top of my head, but I didn't. Uh, we were talking about whether Jesus was God. He said no. And I gave him a bunch of challenges which he couldn't answer. And then he said to me, I said to him, well, how was Jesus raised from the dead? if he wasn't God, because the wages of sin is death. You, you only escape death if you have no sin. That's the only way to escape it. He says, well, the, the, God raised him. God raised him. 
It was through the power of the Holy Spirit he was raised. And I thought, okay, I'll, like I didn't challenge him when I just left it. And I thought, I wonder if I could get a verse to challenge that. Here it is. Here it is. Jesus says this. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. God didn't have to give me authority to do it. Jesus, as the divine being, had the authority. In other words, I willingly go down, and I will raise myself. God didn't have to raise him from the dead. He had the authority to do so. God gave him that authority. God said, when you die, I want you to die for us, for the people, for you and me. Speaking to us, right? He says, okay, and you have the authority to take it up again. You can only do that if, you have, if you're a divine being. You can't, take up, you can't take it up on your own if you have sin in your life. Anyway, next time they come to my door. <laughs> I want to show you a uh, video which you guys might have seen before. I was thinking to myself about the passion, and I had, I had seen it for 10 years, and I thought, I wonder if there's a scene in there that shows Jesus willingly going to the cross. In other words, there's a scene where he actually himself isn't forced onto it, but he has the initiative to go there on his own. And uh, I'm so glad I looked it up. I, Kevin was grateful. We're going to finish the service with this. After this, um, I'll leave you in contemplation for a few minutes. I will stand here with communion, and uh, you can come up whenever you're ready. And I, I really hope that the Spirit of God has changed your impression of Jesus Christ today. <laughs> but I couldn't have asked for a better scene because Mel Gibson did a fantastic job. He actually quotes these verses in here and everything. So it's, it's phenomenal. I, I could never speak or illustrate better than this for, for the way that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. And you, and you watch this, okay? Well, if uh, sin, if we were all good people and made it to glory in our own merits, that's a complete waste of time. <laughs> 